Be advised, the following episode contains content that may not be appropriate for all audiences. Being in the shower, and all of a sudden I'm washing my hair, and I'm like, what the hell's going on? And I, I look, I'm like, oh! And I, I just lost it in the shower, and my hair felt like Brillo. And I'm like, what is going on? And, and I'm going, I'm just pulling my hair, and it's like dropping into the shower, and I'm like, oh my God, it's happening, oh my God, it's happening. This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. American women have a one in eight chance of developing breast cancer. Men get breast cancer too. At age 44, Irene Alton was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer. Today, she's a five-year survivor. Irene, could you walk me through those months leading up to your diagnosis? 2015 was a year where we had a lot of, not direct family in terms of my family, but my, my parents had a really tough year. My um, father had been diagnosed with inoperable stage four lung cancer two years prior. So he was in a uh, battle with you know lung cancer that we knew was not going to end in a positive way. So it was really about you know, helping him through that. And um, I was his proxy. So even though my parents lived in New Jersey, um, I had a lot of phone calls with um, his doctors um, to then translate because we were Greek in culture. So language barrier for my parents was a little tough. So I would translate, you know, a lot of what the doctor would say to my dad and my mom so that they would understand what was happening. So while that was happening in 2015, in March of 2015, my parents' house burnt down. They lost absolutely everything. Totally a fluke electrical fire in their basement. So on top of fighting a cancer battle for my dad, they lost their home. And I, I don't know how, how they handled that. It was a really tough year for them. And as a child, you know, you're, you're concerned and obviously worried about your family. So the last thing you're doing is thinking about yourself. So there were certain things that I would normally do, like go to my normal doctor's appointments, you know, that just got bypassed because they took over on top of having your own family and a job and kids and being a wife and yourself, right? Um, the self part got pushed back quite a bit because I spent a lot of time in New Jersey going back and forth. So leading up to that, um, 2015 was a tough year. Um, and then November, um, my father passed away. And ironically, on the day of my father's funeral, um, my oncologist, my, uh, I'm sorry, my OBGYN called me as we're driving to the cemetery and says, hey, Irene, you know, you missed your, your mammogram. And I was like, oh, my God, your timing is impeccable. I'm like, I'm actually driving to the funeral to bury my dad. Um, she was like, oh, my God. And leading up to that, like, I mean, I have always gotten mammograms. Um, I tended to have dense breasts, you know, so I was always very conscious and doing self-exams. Um, and I had felt something probably like in October that just didn't feel quite right to me. And I remember saying to my husband, like, hmm, I'm like, this feels really weird. It felt like a golf ball, you know, and I'm like, I I've never had anything that felt like this. Um, and I had made my appointment. 
and I never miss anything, like, especially doctor's appointments. They're always planned out. Like, and so when she called, she was like, all right, well, listen, I know you don't, you know, miss your appointments, but um, when you get back, you know, please reschedule. And I was like, okay, yeah, I will. And I remember hanging up and I looked over at my husband and I'm like, isn't that ironic? I'm like, of all things, one, how many years have we known her? And she has never personally called me to tell me to go that I missed my mammogram or a doctor's appointment or anything. And I said, I I just looked at Scott and I said, something's not going to be right this time. And she couldn't have known though. No, it was just coincidence. It was coincidence, but was it, you know, I think back to that day and I remember just saying to him, something's not going to be right this time. And in hindsight, now I look back on that um, because we got back from the funeral in November, and um, then I made an appointment. And then December 16th, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I remember saying to Scott, I'm like, remember that day when we were in the car driving to my dad's funeral? I'm like, I felt like that was divine intervention, because quite frankly, I would not have come back and made that appointment at that point in time. I probably would have pushed it off just because we were dealing with my dad's death and all the things that came after and what was going to happen to my mom. Like the last thing I was thinking about was a mammogram. But had that call not happened at that particular time, I probably would have pushed it off. And who knows when I would have found out that something was wrong. Um, And it could have progressed even faster than it had up until that point in time. I'm a pretty religious person. And, you know, I I believe in the higher power and all those things. And I pray religiously. But I remember being like, you got to be fucking kidding me. (laughs) You know? Did you think God failed you? How did you frame Uh, that in a religious sense? I was angry And I remember being like, how can this possibly happen? Like, wasn't what happened to my dad and my parents bad enough? You know, and they say, God doesn't give you more than what you can handle. Oh, he does sometimes. (laughs) And I was like, I can't handle this. Like, I cannot do more than what I've already done. Like, how much more can you throw my way? I remember being angry. I remember being really just in disbelief and just you know, quite frankly, scared to death. That's got to be one of the scariest things that can ever happen to anyone on earth. You know people, or at least I knew people that had cancer. Um, I learned a lot about lung cancer because I was really, you know, learning more than I needed to know because of my dad, you know. Because that's what he had. Exactly. So, I mean, the day that I got diagnosed, like, I was like, I can't do this. How do I do this? I just spent the past two and a half years learning everything humanly possible about lung cancer. And now I got a shift to breast, you know, and I just couldn't bring myself to that point. So you were 44 years old. They told you you had stage 2B breast cancer. Yeah. So I went in, got the mammogram. And immediately while I was in the mammogram, they said, we need to take you to ultrasound. And right there, I just knew. I I knew right there. The ultrasound is where they really located it, and I could actually see the mass on the ultrasound. Um, Because I knew from previous mammograms, and and I had gotten ultrasounds in the past in lieu of a mammogram, um, like I knew what just a regular mass looked like. And 
I remember looking on the screen, I'm like, that doesn't look like anything else in the past. And the doctor's like, because it's not. And I said, what are we looking at? He goes, um, he goes, I'm not going to say, in, you know, definitively, he goes, we need to immediately do a biopsy. And I said, how big is that? He goes, larger than we need it to be. And I said, is it possible? You know, it's going to be benign. He goes, a size like that? He goes, in my professional experience, no. He goes, but, he goes, we need to confirm. So that was a radiologist at the time doing the ultrasound. So immediately, in the same day of my mammogram, we went straight into ultrasound, straight into a, a biopsy. So it happened really quickly. What should have been like, you know, a 45-minute appointment ended up being a five-hour appointment by the time we went through all of that. And at that point, I was by myself because my husband didn't come with me. So, like, my I was just, like, in shock at that point in time. Like, this isn't happening. This can't possibly be happening. So... Um, that was on the 14th. Were they and able to tell you that day? No. So um, the waiting, because, you know, I'm a very patient person. <laughs> You're a planner. That is the one thing I'm not good at. I single-handedly say patience is not my uh, thing. Um, although I've learned to be very patient. Um, so we had to wait. And then on the 16th in the morning, um, the nurse practitioner from the uh, breast uh, doctors called and said, um, so the results came back, and I'm sorry to say that you are, um, you have breast cancer, and um, we need to do more tests to identify the stage um, and, and everything else that goes with it. So um, here are your appointments. Um, it went fast. Like, I did nothing. Like, they had everything planned out. And, like, life just stopped at that point because, I mean, I was working. I had the kids. You know, I had to pick them up. They had activities. I, I, like, what do I tell my job? You know, like, because you don't want to say anything till you have actually something to say and it's solid and you have a plan. And, you know, it was just like you went from, like, zero to, like, 10,000 in minutes. I was like, okay, what do I need to do? And she's like you know, they're like, okay, we need you to come in. We need to do, we need to do an MRI. The MRI will break down everything. After the MRI came back, that's when the staging came into play. And I was 2B, borderline stage three, um, 3.5 centimeters by five. So it was like the size really of like a walnut. It came back with the blood work that I was what they call triple positive. So um, HER2 positive and estrogen and progesterone um, positive. So in the scheme of breast cancer, five years ago, that was actually bad. But at the same time, there were, um, come to find out, treatments that targeted um, the estrogen and progesterone piece of it, in addition to the normal chemo that I would have gotten. So my prognosis, because of those targeted additional treatments, um, would be better than, let's say, it was 10 years ago, because those didn't exist 10 years ago. Lots of progress we've seen yeah. then. Yeah, I mean, I, I say at the end of the day, you know, had I gotten the type of breast cancer that I had and to the level that I had it, that I probably would not be alive today because the additional treatments that existed five years ago when I was diagnosed and went through treatment didn't exist 10 years ago. So in the scheme of things, I was lucky. I ended up having to also 
test from a genetic perspective and come to find out I was also BRCA positive. So I got all the positives. <laughs> Usually I get the negative stuff. but <laughs> So you were the BRCA1. BRCA1, yeah. That's the same gene mutation that Angelina Jolie had. It, it was, yeah. And that's where, you know, it's funny because a couple of years prior to me being diagnosed where she elected to do uh, bilateral mastectomy and I, I believe also the um, hysterectomy, et cetera. So um, because I tested positive for that, um, part of my treatment was also going to include a full hysterectomy as well. Um, and an oophorectomy. So beyond just the breast stuff. Explain the oophorectomy. What does that mean? Um, so they're basically taking out your uterus and all your fallopian tubes. So basically any female internal part that makes you a female um, from a reproductive perspective, you know, is taken out. That has to be an incredibly heavy emotional toll. Um, it was. Taking away your physical womanhood. Yeah, I mean, I, I think by the time I had that done... I had, you know, the bilateral mastectomy. So that to me, I mean, fortunately, I was done having kids. So that was the only comforting piece to that. Um, had I been younger and wanted more kids or even have the option, then yeah, that would have been devastating. Um, but fortunately, I was able in my mind to say, okay, I can do that part because I'm done having kids. I've ha I've had my family. Um, for me, the mastectomy piece and the losing my hair piece was a lot more traumatic um, than than the the outward physical characteristics of being a woman. I talk very freely about breast size and things like that at this point because it's like irrelevant to me. <laughs> Um, and I'm very it pretty much is as yeah, long as it feeds I mean, <laughs> the baby that it needs to feed. Yeah, um, you know, I, I I've gotten very comfortable and and speak openly about it. You were a large breasted I woman. I was a double D. That's you know? hard to ignore. No, I mean I was a double D. So here you are, you know, a double D. And uh, you know, growing up, I was a perky solid C, and I was very proud of the girls, you know. Um, but then after kids, you know, they they grew in size. <laughs> But, you know, at the end of the day, as as a mom, I breastfed both girls, you know, and, and they developed because of those breasts and the milk that came, you know. So it, it's amazing, um, you know, what, what they do. <laughs> but then they tried to kill you and you understood that we've got to get rid of them. Yeah, I mean, you know, from the day I was diagnosed, it, it was... I mean, once the shock wore off, I went into pure survival mode. That week after was just a whirlwind, um, you know, meeting with doctors, uh, interviewing oncologists, interview interviewing breast surgeons, trying to build my medical team. You know, I was like, if I'm, if I'm going to go through hell, I need the best and the brightest. And I don't care what their bedside manner is. I want somebody that knows what they're doing. And they are going to give me every possible chance of survival. I don't need the warm and fuzzy. I can take care of that myself. I can mentally get my mind where it needs to be. Um, I need, I need the best. And um, we, So you were in New Hampshire and Mass yeah, for different I mean, parts we, of your treatment? I was. Ultimately, I mean, we interviewed doctors at Mass General and also Dana-Farber, and both were fantastic, but I just felt this connection with um, my oncologist, Marsha Brown. Um, she was older. Um, 
she actually reminded me of my grandmother. I don't know why, but she did. And I don't know, I just, I could have easily gone with someone who was probably younger and a little bit more progressive, but I loved her experience. I loved her matter-of-factness. Um, again, I didn't want warm and fuzzy. I wanted someone that meant business, and Skill. they were going to do what they needed to do to give me the best chances of, of survival, and I felt that I had that with her. And then on the flip side, my breast doctor, um, she breast surgeon, she looked like she was 12, um, Harvard graduate, <laughs> you know, I mean, she looked younger than me and she was this perky, super sweet young woman and I loved her. So I felt between the experienced oncologist and the young, um, hip, you know, totally in line with what's in, happening today, surgeon, I felt like I had the best of both worlds. And then the, the second, the third leg of it was going to be the plastic surgeon. And I went with um, Dr. Ehrlichman, um, who uh, actually was a military surgeon. Um, and he, he was just great. So, I mean, I, I felt I built the best team um, that I could that would, I felt would give me the best chances of long-term survival. December 16th of 2015 is when I was diagnosed, and we started chemo treatment uh, January 17th, so a month later, we got everything in place. But leading up to that was getting the, the medical team together. Leading up to that was getting different scans done. Um, leading up to that was the genetic testing. Leading up to that was figuring out, you know, just all the logistics of everything. I had to get a chest port put in. So that was surgery number one. Um, I had to be ready for that first day of chemo. January 17th of 2016, and it involved 12 weeks of chemo um, with an additional two targeted chemos, which were hormone blockers. So I had what they called uh, Taxol, which was the, the original chemo. And then the uh, additional hormone blockers were called Progetta and Herceptin. And uh, those were the two that were the addition because of being triple positive. Um, so that was considered pretty aggressive treatment. I had that for 12 weeks while I worked full time. Um, during that 12 week time period, um, uh, you know, my, my biggest concern was when am I going to start to feel tired? When am I going to start throwing up? When, when am I going to start feeling these things? And when am I going to lose my hair? Uh, my oncologist had it really pretty much down to, to a T with the exception of, I remember her saying, you know, by week 17, um, I'm sorry, by, by day 17, that's when you're going to start to see some hair loss, um, and you should probably have no hair by X period. Well, I didn't see hair loss till the 25th day. But along that way, again, I, I was working full time. And um, I considered that a blessing because it kept my mind off of what I was actually going through. And my job at the time, you know, they knew I was getting chemo on Typically, it was Thursdays, so um, and I timed it so I could be good in the beginning of the week and then have the weekend to kind of recover, um, and that seemed to work. And I would say probably around week eight of the chemo, that's when I started to really feel the effects of it, and it was really more tiredness. Um, initially, in that first 12 weeks, I didn't throw up once. 
Um, my skin looked great. My coloring looked great. Um, I completely changed everything I was eating. I tried to really eliminate all sugars. And I tried like, I mean, every morning consisted of, you know, a, a smoothie of some sort. And I never really ate kale. I ate kale like it was, you know, candy. Um, so I think that really helped in keeping my energy up. Um, but typically, like I'd get, I'd get chemo on Thursday, and then Friday, um, I'd be fine. Then Saturday, um, that's when um, I started to not feel like I was just lethargic. And that took me all the way through the end. And that then led to surgery. So the goal of that 12 weeks of chemo up front versus doing surgery was they wanted the tumor to shrink, hopefully down to nothing. Um, so going into surgery, the chances and the the success of the surgery would be better because there would be less to take out. Um, unfortunately, it didn't shrink, shrink as much as they would have hoped it would have shrinked, um, but enough where they felt comfortable going into the surgery. So at the end of 12 weeks, um, I had ultimately the uh, bilateral mastectomy, and um, we chose to do um, reconstruction at the same time, knowing that I would then need radiation um, after the fact, and they felt that doing um, reconstruction before radiation would be better. Surgery was uh, pretty, I mean, you know, surgery was surgery. It was a nine-hour surgery. Um, going into it, it was, math, you know, major surgery. So, you know, I, I didn't know, you know, anything can happen at surgery. Nine hours, <laughs> you know, wow. And I knew it was going to be a long surgery. And, you know, I mean, I pretty much had made sure, you know, my will was in place. My life insurance was in place. Like, everything was in place because... For all I knew, I could go in and that could have been it, you know. Oh, Irene. So going into that surgery, I remember just saying, this could potentially be the last day I see my family and I could be dead tomorrow, you know, because you don't know. You don't know. I was an emotional mess leading up to that. I remember writing like a 10-page letter to both my girls um, and, and gave it to my husband sealed and said, if I don't come out, of surgery, you know, oh, I get emotional when I think about this. Well, it just breaks um, my heart. I remember just saying, you know, if if I don't come out of this, you know, um, please give this to the girls when they're like 16, you know, so that they're mature enough to read it. Um, and at the same time, I remember saying to him that, you know, hey, if I don't make it out of this, like, please live your life, you know, um, find someone, be happy, you know, uh, I don't want you to not have a life if something happens to me. You know, kind of said my prayer. I, you know, had our priest, you know, give me kind of like a blessing before I went into surgery. And then I just said, you know, God, I hope I come out of this. I still have a lot of life to live. And, you know, I want to see my kids grow up and I want to see them, you know, get through high school and get through college and fall in love and get married and be a success. And I want to grow old, you know. Um, you were only 44. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was um, facing your mortality is not something I ever envisioned facing um, at that age. Because, um, you know, stuff like that just doesn't happen to you. It happens to other people. 
surgery went well. I remember waking up and um, looking at my husband and being like, when am I going into surgery? <laughs> he started laughing. He goes, Irene, he goes, you've been in surgery for the past nine hours. He goes, and he goes, you're, you're done. And I remember just looking down at my chest and, you know, I couldn't see anything because, you know, you're, I was all taped up. And I just couldn't move my upper body. I couldn't move my hands. I couldn't, like, I wanted to, like, feel. And I couldn't because I was just, like, numb. What I remember is um, the nurses coming in, like, an hour later. And one of the single most important things they needed you to do is to get up and walk. To this day, I think that was single-handedly the hardest physical thing I ever had to do. I physically could not get myself up. I could not walk. They had to like lift me. And I remember being in excruciating pain and just like basically saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. They're like, no, you can and you will. And I mean, there was this one nurse. She was tough as nails. Bless her heart, though, because I wouldn't have probably done it had she not been kind of like stern with me. She was like, stop complaining and do it. And I'm not a complainer. Like, I'm, I could tolerate pain. I probably have one of the highest thresholds of pain of most people that I know. And for me to not be able to do it and to say, I can't do this, like anyone that knew me, and she wouldn't have because she didn't know me, but Scott knew when I said, I can't do this, he knew I must have been like in such extreme pain. Like 10 of 10. Beyond, beyond. Like I still remember that pain because it was so intense. Like worse than childbirth Oh pain? my God. That was like... Really? You know, putting, wow. putting that... I can't even explain how hard it was. Um, but I'll give it to both of those nurses. They were like, you're doing it. <laughs> like there was no way in hell they were leaving until I got up and somehow walked with their help, of course. So that was a big reality check for me at that particular moment. Like, wow, I have a major uphill battle here. Um, because up until that point, I have to say I was very fortunate. I didn't have a lot of the basic side effects that a typical chemo patient would have had. Like, I worked the first 12 weeks of, of chemo. And yeah, I was tired, but eh, I was like, all right, this is a piece of cake. I could do this. And a lot of it was just like mind messing with myself, you know, like mind over matter. Like I, I knew there was going to be points in time where it's going to get low. And there was definitely those days, like privately, you know. Um, How low did you get in your mind? Up until that point in time, I hadn't, other than the point in time in the beginning where I was diagnosed. Because... I was like, all right, this isn't bad. I could do this. I could do this. Um, where it got really bad and my lowest point was after surgery. So part of me wanting the most aggressive treatment plan and not having it be prolonged over a two-year period, um, I had uh, agreed to three weeks after surgery go into round uh, the second part of chemo. Um, and that's where uh, it was an additional eight weeks of chemo, but with what they call um, the ANC chemo, which is uh, nicknamed the Red Devil. And um, it was all of that and then some. <laughs> that is when I hit my lowest. Um, 
where I say I was fortunate in the first 12 weeks, I was not fortunate in those eight weeks. Um, I really thought, and I, I understood when people say they can't do something anymore and they give up that will, I had gotten there. Um, I had completely gone bald at that point in time within a week of getting the first shot of it. Like the hair just dropped um, what hair I had left. So it was like, you know, Mr. Clean, squeaky clean. Then on top of that, um, I couldn't hold anything down. Um, you know, despite all the anti-nausea stuff that they had given me, there was nothing. Like I could not make it from the living room, which I, I lived in, to the other side of the house, to the bathroom without throwing up. Um, and that was like multiple times throughout the day. So what, I mean, probably like by the fourth one, I remember just looking at my husband and saying, I, I don't think I can do this. I don't know that I can make it to the eight weeks of this. For me, again, to say that, you know, the whole time he's like, I mean, you're fine. You can do this. You could do this. He was very encouraging. The girls were very encouraging. I tried to hide a lot of it from the girls at that point in time because they weren't used to seeing me. And that particular uh, type of chemo made me angry um, because I, I don't know what it was about it, but it it, it was like I went on steroids or something because I would get it. And then like within two days, it was like I could like rip the entire house apart. It was it made me angry, like emotionally, it made me angry. And um, like literally Scott and the girls would like have to just basically leave me for the day because it needed to work itself out of my system because I was vicious. I was like I was mean. I don't know why it just it took over um, on top of not feeling good. Like, I mean, I literally remember saying, like, I think this is going to be it. I don't think I'm going to be able to get through this remaining four weeks. And, you know, I just said, I get it. I get why people lose their will, because how do you know you're going to feel better? You didn't know you were going to feel better. All, and, and you knew you had four more weeks of this. And, and you was, know you don't want to live the rest of your life like this. If this is not. the state that I'm going to be in. No. I mean, I remember being like, how do people do this? How do people do this? And even in saying that, I remember saying, okay, Irene, just remember, it's mind over matter. Mind over matter. Talk yourself out of it. And I did a lot. And I was reading a lot of like self-helpy type books like where people really um, – just self-manipulated their mind um, to get through what they needed to get through. Um, and that's honestly probably what helped me mentally get through it was just the self-talk. Um, and also during those times, I remember, you know, you'd have these little moments that would come out of nowhere, whether it was like, someone sending you a text or someone sending you a card or something, someone just stopping by. And when you least expected it, but when you most needed it, it was like this little godsend that would come your way. And it would just be like, all right, I could do this. I could do this. I could do this. And for someone who was a planner, you know, I had my whole life planned out. I knew what I was going to do at 18. I knew what I was going to do at 21. I was going to accomplish this by 25. I was going to do this. I mean, I had planned out and I exceeded all the expectations that I had. Um, and then you realize none of that means anything right now because I don't know if I'm going to get from one minute to the other. So the planning went from 
being that intense to week by week, to then day by day, to at the worst of times, it being really minute by minute, because you didn't know minute by minute how you were going to feel. And it changed so quickly. Um, So it it made me realize that, you know what, all the planning in the world is fantastic. um, But I really can't plan for more than like 10 minutes at a time. How hard was it to lose your hair? Uh, That was um, next to losing my boobs (laughs) Um, and physically seeing what I looked like after surgery, which took me five days to get myself to look at myself in the mirror, and I passed out when I did. Um, Losing my hair was a process because it's interesting. In the Greek culture, hair is strength, right? And um, I had long, beautiful hair, long, long, beautiful, thick hair. And even when I was losing my hair, I still had a lot of hair left because of the amount of hair that you I had. You had long, beautiful hair. But I remember the first day it happened, being in the shower, and all of a sudden I'm washing my hair and I'm like, what the hell's going on? And I, I look, I'm like, oh. and I, I just lost it in the shower and my hair felt like Brillo. And I'm like, what is going on? And and I'm going, I'm just pulling my hair and it's like dropping into the shower. And I'm like, oh my God, it's happening. Oh my God, it's happening. And I just like knelt down in the shower and I was like, what do I do? What do I do? Like, what do I do? There goes, there goes my hair. There goes my looks. There goes everything. And at the end of the day, what does it really mean? It's hair, physical, outward transformation that everybody would see and then the the personal transformation of your of your you know female body I mean that was um, I mean I still look at myself in the mirror today and I'm like who the hell am I like I I don't feel I look anything like what I used to look like to this day but it was really hard and the hardest part I think was you know you become very self-aware and everywhere you went um you felt like everybody was looking at you, you know, because, like, oh, there she is. Like, there's the, there's Irene. Oh the lady God. with the scarf on her head. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I didn't, I wore hats, but I wore more scarves because that was more comfortable for me. And I had bought two beautiful, beautiful wigs. And I just, it was too fake for me. I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to do it. I wore, they said to go get a wig while you still had hair so it could match your hair as much as possible to what you normally look like. And I got this beautiful, real hair wig that was long. It really looked nice, but it was so itchy. It was so uncomfortable. And I felt like at any given time, I could slightly move and it'll fall off my head. And I felt like that would be a hundred times worse, right? Um, And then I got a short hair one thinking like, okay, well, you know, once... I started losing my hair. I went to a short haircut before like everything completely fell out and I can alternate between the two, but I ended up really never wearing them because it just, I don't know, it just wasn't me. And I still look in the mirror, you know, also from a weight perspective, you know, once I had the hysterectomy, I gained a lot of weight um, because I went into full blown out um, uh, menopause, you know, within (laughs) less than 24 hours, I went from having no hot flashes to like sweating and, you know, just, I looked at food and I gained weight, you know, know, I haven't been able to shed. I mean, I gained 40 pounds 
Um, and I have not been able to shed that. And it's partly medication. It's partly, uh, I mean, partly diet as well, I would say. But, um, you know, to this day, I, I look in the mirror and I used to enjoy looking in the mirror, you know, <laughs> be like, oh, my hair looks good today. And I just don't, I, I don't look in the mirror anymore. You know, I'm, I used to love taking pictures, not so much anymore. Um, yeah, I feel that way. I didn't have cancer, but <laughs> my neck is saggy. I've got age spots. Yeah, wrinkles. And I'm realizing <laughs> as I get older, it's what's on the inside. Absolutely. And, you know, you realize when your physical existence goes away, and in my case, it did. You know, everything that outwardly made me unique to me. You know, not to anybody else, but to me, because it was about it. You know, people would see me and be like, "Oh my God, you look great." I mean, what are people going to say? You look like shit. You know, um, but I mean, my skin tone was still good. Like, and and I really, when I would when I would go out, I really tried to put on that positivity face because I had to believe it myself because that was part of my mental capacity to get myself through what I was going through you know, you still came home to yourself and you still had to look at yourself and you still had to go to sleep at night and just think like, wow, what, what happened to me? You know, what, how, how did I go from that to this? And, and so fast and so fast, and exactly. so young. you know, and, um, it was a lot, it was a lot to take in. And, you know, going through that process, I remember my oncologist being like, are you, are you okay, Irene? You know, you seem awfully positive. You're, you know, you're really going through all the, all the steps. And typically, you know, by this time, this is when my patients start to go down a dark path and you're not. And I want to make sure I'm checking in with you emotionally. Are you okay? And I was just in complete denial because I was like, nope, I got to get this done. It's got to happen within a year because I don't want treatment to go beyond a certain time period. If I'm going to go through hell, let's just do it, get it over with, and then I'll deal with everything later. Um, And when I started dealing with the everything later, (laughs) um, it it was tough. It was tough, you know. Just coming back to your old life and realizing that it's not what it used to be? Um, yeah, like everything changed, you know. Um, I mean, clearly you're, I mean, you know, my, my husband and I, you know, he became a caretaker, you know, and that's what you do, you know, when you love somebody and, you know, you get married for, you know, richer or poorer, sickness and in health. And, I mean, he was phenomenal, Um and the girls, for considering they were young, they were phenomenal. Um, so much stress, though, the three of them. And your extended family must have had to go through. Um, well, not really my extended family because, you know, my dad had passed away. So my dad wasn't, you know, part of, he had no idea what happened to me. And I, Your often, mother must have been scared. Um, no, because no? what had happened was, you know, my mom was... Um, we didn't realize the extent, but she had also started um, the early stages of Alzheimer's or dementia. We just didn't know what. And so when I I remember, um, she was here when I got out of surgery. And, you know, I had the drains, I had four drains coming out of me. And um, Scott's helping me change them because I couldn't really move. And specifically the day that I said to Scott, okay, I'm ready to see what I look like. 
you know, we walked, he walked me down to the bathroom and, you know, he helped me undo everything and unbuckle everything. And um, thank God he came with me because I passed out. But, and I just remember being like devastated, you know. Um, and I remember him bringing me back and sitting down. And I was just like, I think that was probably one of probably a few times I really, really cried, like crazy cried, um, uncontrollably cried. And I remember my mom being here and my mom being like, well, why are you crying? And I remember looking at her, I'm like, are you kidding me? And that's when it really dawned on me that she really had no idea what I was going through. Um, And I remember realizing, wow, she's really so much further along than we actually know because the focus was so much on my dad. And then within a month, it was on me that we didn't have time to really evaluate where she was at and everything. Um, So, yeah, the support that I hoped I would have had from my mom wasn't there because she wasn't capable of it, you know. So it was really Scott and the girls and, I mean, some really close friends. And I have to say, people in the community that, you know, they came out of the woodworks, really. I mean, we live in a community where... Um, you know, people didn't know what to say. And I think people also looked at me and they were like, it scared them where they're like, oh my God, if this can happen to Irene, this can happen to any of us. A young, healthy woman who plans everything and is spiritual and does everything right. Well, I don't know if I do everything right. (laughs) Far from it. (laughs) Everything right for your health. Well, I mean, I like to think I did. You know, I led a healthy lifestyle, didn't make stupid choices in life and things like that. Um, never smoked. Um, I mean, yes, you know, socially drink and things like that, but um, nothing that would hurt your life. You know, I was active, I was healthy, worked out, did all those right things, ate right. Um, But, you know, biology is biology. (laughs) So you can't control that piece of it. The day after I published this episode marks the five-year anniversary of your initial diagnosis. Is cancer on your mind every day? Every day. Every day. There's not a moment that I don't think about it. I I go to bed every night and I feel myself, even though I can't feel myself. (laughs) Um, I mean, I have no sensation of of my breasts. But, I mean, the the chances of me having a recurrence in my breasts is very slim. Um, However, even with the prognosis and even with the aggressive um, treatment that I had, um, I still have a 15% chance of recurrence. Um, After all of that hell. After all of that. And uh, I remember, you know, my doctor's like, but you have an 85% chance of no recurrence. I'm like, yeah, I don't like those numbers. Like, I'm a numbers person, and those numbers aren't good for me. Um, I'm like, so everything we did, the most aggressive treatment we did, and I still have a 15% chance. To me, that's high. And she said, Irene, she goes, listen, she goes, we did everything humanly possible that we could do, treatment-wise, medication-wise, surgery-wise, everything, every treatment that was out there that we can do and that was the most aggressive, we did. Um, So her recommendation to me was live your life, live your life, stop thinking about it, and life will just progress, you know, and 
you could be one of those people where you don't ever have a, a recurrence and count on that 85%. Think of the 85% instead of the 15 That number is a bigger number, a much it is. bigger number. It is, it is. Rationally. Yeah, I mean, it Emotionally, is. Emotionally, maybe not <laughs> Emotionally, so much. Emotionally, not so much. Um, how do you live your life today now that all this happened? Uh, well, you know, the biggest thing is I tend to be, I naturally was a worrier. Um, so that part of me is, you know, I, I'm definitely an A-type personality. Um, and being an A-type personality, you worry. You think about everything you, that you do. You think about everything that happens in life. And I have tried desperately to be the person that doesn't worry as much. Um, I don't know that I'm as successful at that as I should be, um, but single-handedly, the biggest thing that they tell you is to eliminate stress from your life because stress will kill you. That I still battle with because life is stressful, right? It is. Um, and there's things you can control and there's things you can't control, and it's the things you can control that you try to eliminate the stress from, but you know, it's hard. It's hard to do that. So I think, relatively speaking, I wish I could be carefree <laughs> on a daily basis and bless the hearts of the people that live their life that way. They're they're probably so much better off for it. Um, I try, but I uh, I'm, I'm naturally a person that's you know a, an overthinker. Um, but you're self aware. And I, oh, I'm self-aware of it, and I and, That's and I catch myself, right? right? So I've learned to catch myself, and when I get to a point where that overthinking you know, or exactly, overstressing, like, you know what? There's nothing you can do about it. Walk away. Um, let's put on some music. Let's meditate. <laughs> yeah, let's go for a yeah. walk. So honestly, um, being outside for me is probably the best therapy. Um, anything outside. I love the beach, um, the fresh air. When I was at my lowest, that's what got me through being outside. Fresh air, even if it was just like taking in like a deep breath, that single-handedly helped me get through the day. What do you want people who are struggling with cancer now to know? Single-handedly, um, the mental mindset is the most important thing and that that's the one thing you single-handedly control. Um, you can't control what's happening to your body. You can't control how other people react to you. You can't control the, the stupid comments that people ignorant, ignorantly may make to you. You can't control the outcomes of surgery and treatments and how you feel, but you can single-handedly control your mental mindset. And that for me was the game changer along the way. It was, I chose to be positive versus it would have been really easy to just crumble. Um, because there were definitely more moments to allow myself to crumble on so many levels than to choose to look at things in a positive way. Um, and I made that choice. Uh, I know a lot of people that have had it worse than me. I know a lot of people that have had it not as bad as me. And it was the mental mindset of those people that helped them get through and have better 
views of life and outcomes than those that chose to just let it take over their life and do the woe is me. Yes, I have cancer. I had cancer. I'm a cancer survivor. Um, But it didn't define me. It did, I guess, at a certain point in time, because that was what my life consisted of. But um, you can choose the path you're going to go on from a perspective of what you can control. Um, So I think choosing positivity, yet allowing yourself to feel and get angry. I mean, there were days I threw stuff, I screamed, I cried. And I needed to do that to get it out of my system so that I can then change my mindset and say, okay, you needed to do that. You you let it out. And very few people saw that. <laughs> um, but you know, there were definitely those low, low days. Um, but then at the same time, I chose to say, okay, I could either continue down this path or I can say, get it out, do what I need to do to let myself feel what I need to feel. And I'm entitled to that. And that's okay. And you should feel those things. But then choose to look at it in a positive way and find the silver lining in the small things. Um, So I would say the mental mindset is single-handedly the most important thing to get you through. You and I watched a Vice Media video of people who had undergone cancer treatment, and they talked about what was helpful, what was not helpful to them as they were going through the process. Some of the things they said was just simply being there as a friend was helpful, food was helpful, unsolicited medical advice, not helpful, (laughs) asking to see my bald head, not helpful, letting me know if I need anything, not helpful. The unsolicited medical advice from people that have no idea what the hell they're talking about, that that just, I think, infuriates any cancer patient or even someone that says, oh, my friend went through that. Well, no, yeah, they may have gone through a cancer, but even if it's breast cancer, there's not just one form of breast cancer, there's multiple types of breast cancer, and the experience is so different for everyone, and the treatment is so different for everyone. And that that would like just irritate the heck out of me. Now, you understood that people would be doing that to try to start a conversation and try to feel like I get it, you know, so, you know, you let it go. <laughs> but um, yeah, people asking to see your bald head. Um, yeah, I just wanted to slap people that did that. And there were very few people that did that because with the turnaround, like, oh, my God, you look great bald. And you're no. like, are you like, seriously, like, did you just say that out loud? You know, like, and you can't blame people at the same time. It's because, so hard to know because they're just what trying to say to be, or to do. Exactly. And, and you don't fault and anyone. And it's scary. Yeah. And some people like, you, you know, they just want to say something and they don't know what to say. And they say something that's wrong and you overlook it because you get it. And people's intentions were in the right place. But yeah, I, I do not ask people to see their bald head. Do not ask people to show you their boobs. Do not ask people to um, show you their scars. Um, do not ask people to um, show you their their port. You know, those are 
personal things and it, that like crosses a line. <laughs> you know, if you want to do that because it's somebody that you want to show that to and it's a close friend or, you know, you have that connection with somebody, it's a different story, right? But those are things that you just just don't do. <laughs> um, what did people do that was really helpful? Oh my gosh, there were so many things that I was so, so, so grateful and humbled by. Um, one of my neighbors, um, all unknowing to me, had arranged for weeks on weeks of meal delivery. So she knew that I got chemo on Thursdays and she had a meal for me every week on Thursday. And people that brought meals, like they didn't just bring a meal, they brought like a full blown out meal with like personal made little cards of inspiration and, you know, flowers or just such, such, such sweet things. Or, you know, somebody would send like a hat, you know, um, or a, a scarf, um, uh, just even like a, a like someone made a poster with all like inspirational quotes. You the know, one from and, work? Yeah, yeah, the one from work. That was great. But then there was other ones as well. And it was those things that, one, you didn't expect ever, and they came right at the right time. And little did the person that was doing that have any clue that it helped so much. And, you know, I, I would reach out to everyone. Um, and, I mean, to this day, I'm eternally, eternally grateful for those things because I can't express how much that helped me at that particular time, every little thing. And it happened to be on a day that, you know, wasn't going so great. And it was those silver linings that you don't see coming, right? And then all of a sudden, boom, something shows up or a card or a call or a text. And you're like, oh, my God, I just needed that. Um, and of course, you know, the people that came with me to treatments and just sat there and just were there. I have a really visceral reaction when I see GoFundMe pages mm -hmm. on social media. First of all, that tells me this family is in dire straits. They've got a major health crisis, and they're wondering how in the hell they're going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. But also equally upsetting is that it tells me that our country has failed people on a basic human level. So what needs to change? You know, I have to say I was extremely, extremely, extremely fortunate. Um, my medical insurance through my employer, um, I paid, you know, for the highest plan. Um, so on a, you know, pay schedule, you know, I didn't like the amount of money that was going out to cover my insurance. But I'm extremely happy that I had that insurance because had I not... I can't imagine what my medical bills would have been. Um, for example, just my surgery alone was over $200,000. One of the surgeries? My or initials, the uh, mastectomy and reconstruction. Had I not had insurance, uh, who has just randomly $200,000 to put out? right? I mean, you would basically be, and that was just one thing, forget the chemo, forget the, everything in that treatment phase. Inability I mean, to work, My all medical of it. bills, at the end of the day, I remember reaching out to my insurance company and saying, can you just send me my statement of benefits? I want to see what, from this date to this date, my medical bills would have been over 
like a couple million dollars, right? No. Who has that kind of money if you have no insurance or if you have not so great insurance? Like you will be in a financial catastrophe for the rest of your life. And so when I initially see, you know, the GoFundMe pages initially, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. But at the same time, to your point, you know, we live in a country where we do not have good health insurance. Um, you you pay for certain insurances and and again, you pay a lot of money. You pay a lot of money, but and you it's tied to your work. In it's so tied many to your cases. Work. But look at where we are now. We're in COVID, right? And how many people? Millions of people are unemployed. What do those people do? I say to my husband, like, can you imagine if if I was going through this now? One with would I even be able to get treatment with the amount of people that are in the hospital and and the dangers of that, right? Because as a cancer patient, your immune system is in the in you know rock bottom. How would you even do that? Let alone, what if you didn't have a job anymore? How would you remotely pay for this? And who pays for that? And basically, you can write your life off because you'll be. One, would you even get quality care? I certainly wouldn't have had the doctors that I had and or the medical team because that would not have been accessible to me had I not had the insurance I had. And um, it, it's it's scary. It's scary. And your heart goes out to people because that could be any one of us at any given day, especially today. Something needs to change in a systemic way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know what that is, but... You know, what we've had isn't working for a lot of people. What charities are important to you? I love uh, Pantene Beautiful Lengths. That's where I donated my hair. And I love that organization because, one, when you donate to them, you know it's going to a uh, cancer patient. And um, they actually can tell you um, where it was donated. So it's nice. Um, you feel like a personal connection as opposed to just dropping off a bag and, you know, you hope it goes to where they say it goes to. We have been walking with the Making Strides Against Breast Cancer um, since I was diagnosed. I could not walk at the first one, but um, Team Alton um, was there and we've been walking in that uh, for the past five years. So um, we've raised, gosh, I think in the past five years, a little over $10,000. And I mean, I wish we could do more, but um, you know, I look at anything going towards them is fantastic and it all goes to research. Again, when I think back to had I been diagnosed 10 years ago, I probably would not be alive today because because of that research, it allowed for these two other treatment plans that I had uh, access to that helped me um, stay alive. What I learned in this process is that, you know, don't be one of those people that is, you know, I should have, could have, would have, and never did live live today and make the most of each day because there's no guarantee that tomorrow will be there and just be kind and be happy as much as you can Um, because one day you know life will pass and um, you want to be someone that leaves a a legacy of something positive as opposed to negative and um, I, I try to think about that on a daily basis, you know, to when I'm long gone and God knows when that's going to be, hopefully, you know, later than sooner. If something was to happen to me tomorrow, what, what, 
what have I left? And what will people think of me? And, and what possible inspiration through this god-awful cancer battle did I battle? Did I leave behind that maybe helped even just one person, um, let alone hopefully be an inspiration to my, my friends and my daughters especially? Do you have a compelling story? Or do you know someone I should interview? Drop me a line at diaryofanation at gmail.com. Please tell a friend to listen too. That's how we grow our audience and continue podcasting. Find Diary of a Nation through your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Diary of a Nation. Diary of a Nation.